Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. I just finished speaking with Benjamin Martin about his new book, The Nazi Fascist New Order for European Culture. This book was published by Harvard University Press in 2016. Martin's book explores attempts by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy to create a pan-European cultural empire rival to Western Europe and the Soviet Union. Based on a Volkish nationalism, Germany's cultural initiatives in music, film, and literature oppose the so-called degenerate influences of cosmopolitan modernism in mid-century art. Tapping into fears of American commercialism and feelings of European decline, Hitler's empire of culture offered a third way for Europe's conservative cultural elite, while maintaining friction between Mussolini's Italy, where the spirit of experimentation in futurism and modernism held a favored status. It was a pleasure to talk to Ben, and I hope you enjoy the show. Ben, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so um, before we dive into the book, um, just could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and, and why did you decide to become a historian? Oh, it's a fun question. Let's see. The background, well, I mean, I'm... Uh, American, you know, boy from Los Angeles, uh, my students now here in Sweden often wonder how an American came to be concerned with the problem of Europe. So I guess that's the, that's the answer I'm used to giving these days. Mm-hmm. Grew up in Los Angeles, tra- went to college in Chicago, and it's in Chicago that I studied Italian literature, having spent, I guess this is an important uh, detail, uh, a year of high school as an exchange student in northern Italy. Okay. Okay. Italian then, and actually, you know, as luck would have it, it was a liceo linguistico, you know, high school with an emphasis on languages, which meant that I was made to take German for the first time that year as well. So really, you know, already at the age of 16, I was thrust into the Italian-German connection. Mm-hmm. Although who knew right then what horrible things I would learn about later. Anyway, so I <laughs> studied, I did that. In in college, I, as I said, studied Italian literature. And towards the end of that period third year, I think, I had written a paper about the futurists and the fascists, and I was very drawn already then to this nexus of high culture and political power and the issues of cultural nationalism at the at its sort of high end, high in the sense of, you know, fancy high culture. Mm-hmm. And a professor at that point uh, said you know, the paper was all right or whatever, but she said, I recall, in a very important conversation, that this isn't really what we do in literary, you know, studies and in the literature department. And what you seem to be interested in is not really the poetry, which was true, because I really don't, I sort of can't stand futurist poetry, but the, <laughs> but the, but the culture and the politics and those connections. And she said, and that seems to me, you should look into what the cultural historians do over in the history department. And I confess, I don't quite know where I had gotten this impression in high school or something, but I hadn't even considered majoring in history because I think mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't know, it wasn't the issues that I was concerned with. And 
But of course, I was wrong about that. And University of Chicago had all sorts of terrific cultural historians at that point, but of whom I was totally unaware. So I did not change majors, but I finished the degree in Italian and but began taking a number of history courses and decided to apply to graduate school in history and was lucky enough to be admitted at Columbia, where Victoria de Grazia, of course, was the is the expert on modern Italy there, who I think wanted me as a grad student. Right. Uh, and I now that I'm in Sweden, where this is not the case, I appreciate the fact that the that Columbia was willing to take a student who had not majored in history as an undergraduate, but rather, you know, languages, uh, where in many national systems, including Sweden, that's actually completely impossible. If you don't have the undergraduate degree in a field, you can't study further in that field. So mm-hmm. that was lucky for me to get to slide over. And quickly, I felt, you know, at home. I mean, that the, the, the broad range of concerns, the almost sort of imperialist, you know, queen of the disciplines sense of history appealed to me, that sort of everything was open. It also is, uh, makes it hard to, to finish projects when so much is potentially on your plate. But in any case, I, uh, yeah, that's what took me to, to the field of history in that sense, or to the discipline. Mm-hmm. In a broader sense, you could say that history in terms of just old stuff had always interested me, and that I remember, you know, as a kid when my father and older brother were all excited about the very first computers that we had at home, I had an obsession with 1950s cars and like just old, I was always drawn to old stuff. So that's somehow, I don't know what that says about me, but that's, that's not our topic today, I trust. <laughs> uh, and um, so why, why... Why Europe and why the 1930s and why fascism? What, what, why this particular project? Then uh, you could have done other things, but why, why this particular? Project? Well, the Italian German. I mean, ultimately, you know, modern Italy was a concern of mine. And during graduate school, I became very interested in the Italian German thing, and I put it vaguely for a reason. Because I mean, two things. On the one hand, there was a comparison, mm-hmm. uh, and on the other hand, there was the points of contact. So first. It, you know, I'm not the first to notice this, of course, that, that the sort of national trajectories of Italy and Germany have a number of striking similarities, that they're both divided throughout the early modern period. They achieve, they become national states almost at the same time and quite, you know, quote-unquote late compared to other countries. They embark on a project of, you know, radical nationalism and, and military expansion and with these two, you know, innovative uh ideologies of the 20th century, fascism and national socialism, they're both crushed, you know, in the war, and then both emerge to, you know, great wealth and have the economic miracle afterwards. Anyway, I began to think like, gosh, what's this sort of arc that they have in common, and where could one study that? What's the best point at which to sort of get in there? Now, Mm -hmm. being in graduate school in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was just the time when there was a lot of talk about not doing comparative history, but rather transnational, right? That became the yes. thing. And in my case, that was very appealing to look at the places, uh, not try to line them up next to each other, which always raised all sorts of questions, you know, is what's an appropriate category of comparison and comparing the two of them to what, you know, and which led back to some of the very interesting questions in the German historical field about the debate about the so-called Zonderweg, the special path, and, you know, which, of course, always compares Germany to the Western countries and, you know, could comparing Italy get around that? But ultimately, I thought, all right, let's look at points of contact. 
And those, of course, are many and, and have a long history. I developed a whole dissertation topic about German-Italian connections in the era of the Risorgimento and the, you know, the foundation of mm-hmm. the two national states, and was nearly going to do that. Uh, okay, okay. So it would have it, originally you were working maybe on a nineteenth-century. Oh, yeah, no, I yeah, okay. started with it. I drafted a whole you know prospectus and whatnot. Ultimately, though, since my concerns sort of went towards the twentieth century. I realized, and this is a very important point that took me a while to sort of get my head around, but the kind of inbuilt fallacy, I mean, the, 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 the really sort of thin ice that you walk on if you're interested in this later period and you go long before it, thinking you're going to find the keys to the, you know, what happens later. I mean, that, that, can, that can work, but if you want to draw something forward through time, it seemed to me in the end it was better to start, you know, at my point of arrival rather than, mm-hmm. yeah, in any case. No, very little of those initial concerns uh, survived into the book. Some of them survived into the dissertation, perhaps. But uh, because ultimately, in looking for points of German-Italian contact, the few things jumped out at me. One was their enormous emphasis on culture as the point of contact between the two regimes. Now, this is not to say that they didn't do all sorts of economic exchange and a military alliance and all sorts of other things. But the way the two regimes presented their alliance as somehow cultural, the way they used the language of culture, you know, the capital C, to, mm. to articulate their claim to be offering something new in Europe, as opposed to the Western Europe, the leadership of the Western European democracies, that mm. seems very interesting. Secondly, in looking at, for example, you know, conferences and meetings and things that are taking place between Germans and Italians, I kept finding that lots of other people are there too. That is to say that they're not just talking to each other. Of course not. They're, they're holding international and European meetings where they interact with the opposite, you know, fascist party, uh, you know, colleague there, but also with all sorts of other countries. And it was some of those meetings, learning about them from secondary literature initially and then digging into them in archives first in Rome and then in Berlin, that I, that the kernel of what this book is, you know, was located. I mean, that's where I got started. I don't know if that's very clear. Okay. But, yeah, in a, in a very, in a down-to-earth way, which was driven partly by the sources. And then finally, this is, of course, mm-hmm. important, that the issue of Europe as a problem and as a point of historical interest had not been on my radar at all as a college student. But I think that as a... Uh, you know, you're paying attention to Europe, you're living and studying in Europe at the right around 2000, 2001, 2002, the introduction of the euro and this great moment of sort of euro euphoria, not only starting the currency, but around the, the union and what it meant and its future prospects and the enthusiasm about the potential European century that was opening and all this sort of talk. It's hard to remember now, isn't it? It seems like a long time ago already. Yeah. But that uh, that moment affected me also in the sense that Suddenly, to see the Nazis and fascists talking about Europe and taking the language of Europe in their mouths, not just now and then, but all the time, mm-hmm. I think just historians were aware of that, of course, but they just didn't take it seriously, I think because they assumed it was all sort of blah, blah, and propaganda, or just because the problem of Europe wasn't of interest to them in the same way as it became, you know, for me and many others at the end of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, I mean, the, 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 there's a lot. There, this book is is wonderful because there's there's so many layers. There's there's this sort of you know um, idea that there is this problem of Europe and and similarly similarly to our own day, there is there seems to be this impasse in the 1930s that that the the fascists and the Nazis take on at least discursively, saying that well we we can't go on. It's either high Central European, what, what the Germans would call Kultur, or this sort of civilization, which is sort of Western Europe, Britain, and France as this sort of uh, longer stating sort of internationalist, uh, uni- almost universalist um, idea of culture that, that seems at least in their discourse, diametrically opposed. Can, can you talk about that? Because that's a really major theme in, in this book. It is, it is. And it's, uh, hmm, let's see. No, I mean, <clears throat> this will be familiar to many of the people who care to listen to a discussion of this book, I suppose, so I'll try to, you know, no, keep it short. But there's a, um, let's see, it's actually in the period of some of the activities that I describe in this book is, uh, so ironically, the moment when Norbert Elias writes these famous reflections on the, the idea of culture and civilization in German history, where, you know, let me see, I want to not do terrible injustice to this, but, you know, simplifying somewhat brutally, mm-hmm. the argument is that German elites in a uh, territorially divided and relatively economically weak part of Europe, you know, compared to, say, France, uh, resent the the claims to superiority from, you know, the, the Parisian elite, and begin to say that while, okay, so while Paris has, you know, the glittering civilization and ideas of progress, and this and that, claims to universal legitimacy of their, of their uh, choices in taste, these Germans say, no, no, but we have this sort of access to depth which is rooted in our national specificity, which is, you know, connected to the, the to depths of feeling, and it's sort of spiritual, and it's not just, you know, fashion and, and, and glittering um, uh, surface. Mm-hmm. In particular, in World War One, this these sort of concepts get mobilized in a variety of ways. One is famously Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West, where he ends up drawing a distinction between civilization as uh, and culture, where he says that cultures are the real, authentic expressions of peoples in their organic development, and that when they get sort of overdeveloped, overripe, then they they decline from culture to civilization. That usage of the word, however, I'm not sure if that's the most influential one. I think the the other one is the way it gets used, for example, by the at this point angry nationalist Thomas Mann. Uh, in this very famous Reflections of an Unpolitical Man, also written in the heat of the anger of World War I, where the anger has not only to do with the politics of the war, but also with this claim that Western uh, European, especially French intellectuals, are making great vigor during the war, where they claim that Germany has not only you know, started the war or is you know, wrong about its claims, but that Germany has really left the family of civilization, that the line that separates you know, European civilization from Eastern barbarism now runs you know, on the Rhine, and, uh, and that that's where, uh, and that and the Germans by, for example, invading Belgium, etc., have really exited them and are to be treated like barbarians. 
And the educated German classes are outraged. You may be familiar with, or some of the listeners will be familiar with, this famous propaganda poster from World War One, in which the uh, Germans, you know, list all these Nobel prizes, and there's pictures of Beethoven and Mozart mm-hmm. and you know whatnot. And of course, we're not barbarians. We're the most sophisticated country in Europe, right? But in that moment of anger and heat, someone like Thomas Mann argues for again and politicizes this already existing distinction between the supposedly superficial and and uh, artificial and arrogantly universalist, that's important, uh, mm-hmm. vision of civilization of the West, and the German vision of culture, which is both you know transcendent and non-materialist, that is to say, right, sort of high and, and, and unsullied by dirty money and things like this. So it aims up in that sense, but it also is rooted downward in the national specificity of Germany and by that token in other countries. And this is important. Already in World War One, you see a certain kind of German intellectual making the claim that that Germany, unlike, say, France, Germany is entitled to be a leader in Europe because it appreciates national diversity. It, it doesn't want to make everyone the same. Right. That was Napoleon. But when yeah, Napoleon, exactly. And the, the French drive is to try to make everyone the same. The Germans already, since in the anti-Napoleonic intellectual movements of someone like Fichte, right, they mm-hmm. recognize, you know, that, that each each people has its own geist, its own spirit that needs to be allowed to be expressed, etc. This is some of this connect that famous quotation, right, on Deutschen Wesen soll die Welt genesen, that the, somehow the world will be healed by the German deeper, more spiritual understanding of mm-hmm. culture and of diversity. Now, that the Nazis of all political movements should be able to lay claim to this language is just as perversely ironic as can be. And yet, in my book, I'm arguing precisely that, that the cultural organizing that Goebbels unleashes already in the 30s and then with greater speed during the war makes that claim, namely that, that Germany, not the West, is the country that can organize a European culture in which the nations will be able to breathe and express themselves and come to fruition. And that that claim, perversely enough, is able to, under the circumstances of German military and economic domination, attract some interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the beginning of the book, you, you talk about how partially the reason for this this um, German view of culture is because they were more or less deliberately pushed out of sort of. Uh, France, Anglo-French cultural exchange after the the First World War, and this sort of being ostracized in the wake of Versailles is a serious problem, not just for cultural people, but for scholars and scientists. Uh, Do you think that that being isolated in that way, or or the feeling of isolation, breeds this sort of discourse? I don't know that I want to make a general, you know, pan-historical claim about that, but certainly I will say that the Research of uh, Birgitta Schröder-Gudehus has these rather mm-hmm. old now uh, books about the, this moment of, sort of the, the war in the sciences that follows World War I that I found extraordinarily illuminating and indeed found that the, some of the particular individuals whom I was running into in the archives, right? I mean, these, these, these figures who were working for the, the Nazi education ministry, and et cetera, planning to seize documents from Paris and Brussels and make Berlin the center of the intellectual world during World War II. Mm-hmm. Some of these same guys had been very active in the sort of counter-boycott. That is to say, they felt that, uh, felt, I mean, it's true, right? That right after World War I, 
new international intellectual organizations are created uh, in order to avoid having to resuscitate the ones in which Germany had a leading role. Mm-hmm. So you start to see, and this is, again, this is, I came to, you know, through my research. I didn't start being interested in the history of international intellectual organizations, but the Italian-German activity led me there. And then I began to see what scholars, you know, have outlined, that by the late 19th century, you see this, yeah, quite extraordinary uh, growth of internationalism, not only in the political or diplomatic sphere, but in virtually every sphere of science, uh, academic life, and, and, and culture. So you have uh, professional organizations in different fields that become international. You have more and more of these international conferences. You know, it's the, yeah, it's the dawn of the, this international age, the peace movements, all this kind of thing. And the Germans are playing a leading role in many of these. And then, during and just after World War I, they're, they're excluded from them in a, in a way which certainly complements the, the sort of standard storyline we've all heard before, which is that, you know, what a terrible mistake the Treaty of Versailles was, because if you punish the loser in that way, you just make them more angry. And I suppose this is the academic equivalent of that storyline. And certainly, it certainly made people angry. And it showed me that a number of German conservative intellectuals who... You know, they're not Nazis, but they end up cooperating with the Nazis and end up being very enthusiastic about, for example, the fall of France in 1940, because it allows them to finally undo this sort of crime against Germany that they perceived having taken place just after World War One. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good good uh, time to talk about uh, the first two chapters and, and talk about how, in the wake of Versailles, in, in a number of fields, in, in you talk specifically about um, music and, and composers and also the film industry on how there is there are these new international organizations that are supposed to at least perhaps not regulate the production of, of music or, or regulate the production of film, but they definitely attempt to encourage it uh, over the sort of German case. And a lot of German uh, cultural figures sort of end up sort of cooperating, as you say, with the Nazis, because for a variety of reasons, some of it's, some of it's over copyrights. There's an interesting part when you talk about um, in the wake of Versailles in the, and now having uh, uh, music on new devices like uh, the record player or in films, people that were uh, composing music uh, basically couldn't get the royalties in, in, in uh, American films sometimes. So that, that made them quite suspicious of sort of this international capitalism uh, without the state protecting them. And it seems like oftentimes in this book, capitalism becomes, for many of these high cultural figures, sort of uh, something that they fear and that they, they want the state to intervene, at least protect their rights, uh, their intellectual rights, or even be a patron to their work. Can you talk about that? Because that's a recurring theme in the book that I thought was super interesting. Well, uh, that's great. I, I, yes, it, and again, it struck me, you know, through the sources that you see, uh, again, I by no means set out to write about copyright, uh, but found that that's what they're talking about at the meetings often, and that's the hook that is being used to hold people into to cooperating. Um, so, Let's see, take a step back. The, the 1920s are so interesting, in I think, in cultural history because it's this coming together of uh, 
of this moment of extraordinary you know, economic and political upheaval in all the big ways that we that we know, right, in the, the post World War One chaos, combining with a lot of broad transformations in the cultural sphere that have, as you were suggesting, something to do with technology in certain fields for sure, right, like uh, like the the phonograph and the movies, and in particular the development of the new um, uh, new electronic loudspeakers, right? This is very important because sure. the record mm-hmm. technology exists already, but it's only once you have a loud enough electronically amplified loudspeaker that you can start to have dances where you no longer need a band because you can use a recorded recorded music instead, right? Sure. Uh, and where you can do a variety of things in these movie soundtracks. You can uh, use music and just not pay, right, to so the composer of the music, or, uh, and this comes up more than once, I've seen in different sources where composers are outraged to hear kind of jazzifications of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of classical music, which they find not just, you know, that someone didn't get paid, but that the whole idea is somehow disgusting and insulting, and that that should have been stopped. And how could that be stopped? Through uh, what's called moral rights of the composer, which is, extends beyond, or droit moral, as it's sometimes often referred to through the French phrase, even when writing about it in English, Mm-hmm. And those are the rights that allow uh, the the composer or author of a work to control, to exercise control over its use beyond even just questions of, you know, getting paid royalties. And that issue is of burning interest, not suddenly, you know, in, in 1934 or something. It has been for a long time. And that's what's interesting. Someone like Richard Strauss, one of the great composers mm-hmm. of the 20th century, with a long interest in these copyright issues. And he had played a, you know... Uh, administrative role in organizations surrounding those issues already before. So he thinks, when he's invited by Goebbels to be the head of this new Reich music chamber, among other things, he's excited about the chance to to make progress on that issue. But the issue is inherently international. And mm-hmm. so, uh, from the very beginning, his very first meeting in his new capacity as president of this Reich chamber of music, he's inviting foreigners to Berlin. Now, and creating an alternative international music organization. Alternative to what? Well, the standard view has been that the the International Society for Contemporary Music, or ISCM, is very famous in the history of modern music because it brought together all these great famous composers and all sorts of very important avant-garde works were premiered at its festivals. You know, pretty small in terms of big mass events that are happening elsewhere Mm -hmm. in Europe, but but full of, you know, the most influential composers with lasting influence on, yeah, modern art music. And so there's a certain storyline that says that the that Strauss helps found this organization, the Permanent Council for International Cooperation Among Composers, as the mm-hmm. anti-ISCM. Yes. And there's something to that, right? It, stylistically, there's some opposition, etc. But... Then, of course, the standard view says, of standard, there isn't that much written on this, but there's some, and the people who have written about it have noted that the composers who Strauss, whom Strauss assembles are, with a few exceptions, you know, sort of B or C team you know, mm-hmm. guys. So then it's, that sort of settles the issue, I think, for, for some people. You say, oh, I see. Well, look, you know, the ISCM has all these you know, great composers of the 20th century, and this, the Nazi group is a bunch of hacks. Mm-hmm. I don't even have much to say to, about that or to dispute it. But what I found in looking up these fellows whom the Nazis assemble at these organizations, who they really are is and why they're really there is that they are the representatives of the copyright or artists' rights organizations in their respective home countries. 
Mm-hmm. So they're being brought to Berlin to found a kind of international institution of institutions, right? A kind of, uh, what do you call that? Uh, a meta body that will link yeah. up these national bodies all around, you know, making Berlin the center where all these national bodies will be able to uh, be influenced by the new model of state uh, influence over copyright, which the Nazis quickly have created, the so-called stagma, which is the uh, state-controlled state artists' rights organization. Mm-hmm. They've been private, they're bourgeois organizations in every other country. Uh, and, you know, the Italians and the Germans have led the way on that. And so they're trying to gather people with, with that in mind. Now, uh, that economic goal in mind. So that then opens a little side door to the point you mentioned before, which is why um, the fear of capitalism. I guess I would specify that a little and say that the, what the concern is with kind of international capitalism. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. These guys are not anti-capitalists in the sense of, you know, being communists or something. But they are afraid of the kind of cross-border flow of, for example, movies, or the cross-border flow of their own compositions, you know, being recorded abroad and them not seeing a penny for it. And this is true, you know, for especially composers from smaller countries who have no, you know, legal recourse. Uh, so what Nazism and fascism, among other things, are doing, and what, you know, some people in the cultural field are paying attention to, is they're developing models for big state intervention into the cultural sphere, which are not only scary in the sense of censorship and saying who can play what and things like that, purging the Jews. Uh, they're not purging the Jews in Italy at this point, right? But, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but what these organizations are doing in Italy and Germany already, you know, by the mid-30s is, uh, as I say, offering a model of state support to the arts where you have to join this organization, but then, you know, the state will take care of you. The state will arrange for, uh, you know, sponsor concert programming, um, you know, rescue the famous story, and there's research on this, which is not mine, but the famous story of how the the Nazi state basically rescues the Berlin Philharmonic from near bankruptcy and, mm-hmm. you know, uses it to put on concerts that the German, you know, educated classes appreciate and then sends it out across Europe to demonstrate the commitment to high cultural values of the Nazi regime. So, you know, we see now that that very creepy politicized project at the time, as I say, a lot of composers who had, and not just composers, lots of people in the cultural fields, who had experienced the degree to which transnational free market capitalism is not friendly to the maintenance of their high national cultural traditions. Mm. Because, it, you know, capitalism doesn't care, right? Capitalism... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, what, it's like... What sells. In this, yeah, in the book, you, it, like, there's always sort of this, this sort of... Uh, Thing where where the this these these high cultural figures want the state to get involved because they can't commercialize their product like you cannot sell Strauss in the way that you could sell jazz you know it, it's 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 just not there. It's ironic now because that's now the case of jazz in much of the world, right? That it's a sure, wonderful sure. art form that can't really support itself without without benefactors and various forms of you know state support, I mean, depending on, depending on the country, because, it, yeah, but anyway, at the time, yeah, popular music and its new forms of big money-making uh, in the arts and in cinema and etc. that are, yeah, that are very threatening to people who, to cultural figures and some political elites, who have a stake in the maintenance of traditional cultural forms. 
And so let's say something about that. What is it they're interested in? On the one hand, it's their own tastes and values. And, you know, I'm not going to, you know, paint everyone who was concerned about the fate of classical music as somehow, you know, a retrograde, uh, right? Uh, that's, that, that's a legitimate concern. And sure. the question is, you know, who's going to help to take care of these traditions? In many countries, moreover, this is linked to a strong view that the national, the national soul is somehow going to be lost if these cultural traditions are undermined. And finally, we should not forget that, you know, whether or not they're aware of it, the people arguing for this have a lot at stake in terms of their own social positions and their own uh, hierarchical status in their societies. They have a lot at stake in the maintenance of these traditional cultural forms, too, right? Because they, mm-hmm. being a tastemaker is a powerful position, and if you feel like you're losing that, then that makes people upset. Uh, which is why the some of the issues I discuss in the book, they come across in the music section, they come across, if anything, even more clearly in the discussion of cinema. Because mm-hmm. there you can really see that some countries have not developed a national cinema industry. They barely have anyone making movies in their own languages. And then just when they think they'd like to get started with that, it seems literally economically impossible because mm-hmm. of the arrival of Hollywood movies, which are already always very cheap when they show up on European shores because their production costs have been covered on the home market in the U.S. So these are big budget, fancy movies with very high production values, right? And this is kind of the golden age of the studio system. And, they're, and they can dump in economic terms, right? They can sort of dump these movies on the European market. Uh, and what European country could make a movie with anything like that kind of classy production values or, you know, stars or anything like that uh, and and uh, hope to cover those costs domestically? Nobody, not even Germany, which is by far the biggest, you know, country, biggest language group. Uh, and they can't do it. So there are structural reasons, quite apart from any ideological thing about nationalism or, or God, you know, forbid, Nazism or fascism, there are structural reasons why... European film producers around the continent have an interest in banding together to turn Europe into something like a home market where anyone could, any of these countries could hope to produce expensive movies that could compete with Hollywood and be able to move them around in a continental scale market, right? Mm-hmm. So on that basis, then, you have the opening for a appeal, which then can, of course, be linked to a national appeal. And this is my last point on this, linking back to the music point, right, which is that Elites in a country, state elites or cultural elites in a particular, you know, smaller European country who think that cinema is something they'd like to be able to use. It seems to be a very powerful sure. tool, you know, to, to mobilize your masses and exercise control and bring your country into modernity. And if you can't do it because Hollywood is doing it for you, that's a serious violation of what has been called you know, your cultural sovereignty, your ability to mm-hmm. control right. And that's upsetting. <clears throat> And then if Germany and Italy are going to offer a response to that, people are going to pay attention. Sure. Um, yeah, this is interesting. Uh, maybe, maybe we can talk about the various points of cultural friction between Germany and Italy. Italy, uh, oftentimes in your book, uh, with music and uh, with cinema, is more interested in hybridity than Germany is. Germany is interested in musically pretty conservative films. They, tr- they want to stop importing American films. They don't do it as, um, they don't do it super early, but the Italians are still import- importing American films. Was it in 1940 or 41, you said that, that um, 
Mussolini still importing American films uh, to show in Italy, which I just thought was astounding. Yeah. Um, oh, go on. Sorry. Oh no, no, no. I mean, um, I just, I just thought it was a. Uh, there were various points. Maybe you can talk about these points of, of friction in this uh, Nazi fascist cultural sphere. Yes. No, indeed, there are many, and that was a you know, difficult issue to work on throughout. Uh, the the key to it was a simple but profound observation that the historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat made already some time ago, who's a scholar of Italian fascism, that the Italian-German relationship has to be thought of as a mixture of uh, cooperation and competition, you know, at every point. Uh, There's another famous book, quite uh, extraordinary uh, German dissertation from, what, the 90s, which imagines that German, presents the German-Italian relationship as something between cultural cooperation and Kulturkampf, Okay, yeah. And pushes that a bit further. That always I found harder to accept because it it ultimately somehow ends up painting Italy as a kind of victim that's fighting with the Germans. Where what seems to me, at least from these cases that I study in this book, is an Italian sort of cultural political establishment that's very keen to present Italy as a legitimate uh, and rightful cultural and intellectual leader in a new post-democratic Europe mm-hmm. and which or but or and which uh, seeks to use Germany's superior economic and military power to vault Italy into a position of being able to exercise that intellectual and cultural uh, influence knowing that mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to do it on their own you know, military merits so that's the uh, that's part of, in, a, in a that's one of the big storylines I guess of the book is this uh, effort of the Italians to hitch their cart to the German, you know, charging bull, which ends up being a disaster, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, now, then many people at every stage of my research have asked me, yeah, but Italy and Germany, they're so different, and, you know, the fascists were, were not anti-modernist, you know, in the arts, and so how do you reconcile that? Well, then I look to the sources to see how did, in fact, they reconcile it. And we see a few interesting things. One is, so let's go back for a moment to your question about culture and civilization, which is a very mm. German problem, right? And it sure. seemed to be completely foreign to the Italian discussion. There, what I find is that in the... So in World War I, for example, the leading Italian intellectuals, you know, many of whom are going to be big fascists, are super pro-France and super anti-Germany. And they mm. link Italy and France as sort of Latin sisters... And they embrace the notion that Italian civiltà is somehow linked to French civilization, right? In the 30s, you can really see these guys uh, rearranging the position of civiltà as if sort of taking the sort of cultural geopolitical position of what civiltà, Italian's, Italy's specific vision of culture or civilization, and reorienting it, claiming that, oh no, actually, it turns out to have deep connections to the German tradition, it turns out to not be, you know, only linked to the, the national, the excuse me, the natural cognate of French civilization, and uh, and of course you can say, well, that's just propaganda they come up with at the moment. But in fact, they have a lot to draw on. They can go back to key thinkers, for example, you know, non-fascist key thinkers like Benedetto Croce, the great, you know, the towering intellectual of, uh, of early 20th century Italy. Mm-hmm who's obsessed with the deep connections between the Italian and the German traditions and sees somehow Vico, 
uh, and Hegel as uh, as the twins of a of an understanding of philosophy rooted in history and specificity, as opposed to the Anglo-French Enlightenment tradition, which is always abstract and uh, and universalist, etc. And you know, you and you hear the echo of things we talked about a moment ago. Sure. Uh, so anyway, there's a lot to draw on there. And once Italy and Germany are in a you know emerging in something of a political alliance, those intellectual roots are drawn out and made much of in lots of more or less propagandistic uh, texts. But I think it's important to recognize that those texts don't have to make things up from whole cloth because there are these you know, traditions, points of contact. Okay, then you get to the question of uh, particular arts policy issues, for example, regarding modernism. And there's a sort of funny, there's a darkly funny uh, episode relatively early in the Italian-German axis where the Italians put on a big art show in Berlin in 1937. Mm-hmm. of Italian painting of the 19th and 20th centuries. And they send this, you know, hundreds of paintings, big show. And uh, Goering, I think, opens it and Hitler visits it. And when Hitler mm-hmm. leaves his visit to the exhibition, he quickly you know, ignores the press and storms out and won't make a nice political comment of the kind everyone was expecting. And it is communicated to Rome later that he hated the show because there were some futurist paintings in it. And mm-hmm. futurism was was okay. I mean, the, you know, Marinetti was a had had his ins and outs with the or his outs with the fascists in the early twenties, but you know, was a big supporter of the regime, and uh, and the regime made lots of room for that vision of a kind of future oriented radical right wing cultural and political project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happens then? Well, you know, nothing. The reasons for the Italian German cooperation are able to survive that hiccup. And later, I remember finding these archival documents related to a planned art show in 1940, and the Italians are very careful not to send anything even remotely futurist to, Ger- to Germany at that time, right? And they just, you know, they just take care of it. Uh, in the, even into the late 40s, the Germans complained that when they go to international music conferences in Italy, there's still, you know, there are still, in quotation marks, Jews around. Uh, and there's, quote-unquote, still modern music being played. Eventually, of course, in 1938, the Italian fascists adopt uh, harsh anti-Semitic laws also, which then, you know, align the two regimes much more closely in that, in that regard. Mm-hmm. But that, doesn't, that by no means eliminates the points of uh, conflict. And the last one, which I was very interested to find in not just one or two places, is these moments during the war in which the... German cultural political establishment are aware of the Italians' ongoing belief in their own superiority and aware of the Italians' ongoing efforts to do autonomous cultural outreach to other European countries. And this makes the Germans nervous because some of them are well aware that, uh, that you know, Italy has some cards to play, if you like, sure. uh, and has some appeal, for example, not least vis-a-vis, you know, being the home of Rome and the Catholic power and being able to link a kind of uh, conservative political project to a uh, conservative vision of Catholicism and make outreach on that basis, etc. So I remember finding a few different documents where these, you know, uh, German observers say, we have to keep a close eye on this, we have to make sure to shut this down, we have to make sure to hold our own event before the Italians hold a similar one on their own. And, uh, you know, so that, documents like that, uh, strengthened my resolve with this project, where sometimes I wondered, like, well, maybe I should just write it about Germany, because, you know, that would make things simpler, and 
who are the mm-hmm. Italians really anyway? It's a small power by comparison. But in the the balance of power in the cultural sphere is not exactly the same, of course, as the balance of power in the economic and military sphere. And the German, you know, these Goebbels underlings, they know that and they pay attention to it. Okay. Um, so, Ben, uh, that's take us to, to the war and, and, and towards the end of, of this Nazi fascist cultural project. So, so what happens uh, towards the end of the war? Just, just this, I mean, we know that uh, German hegemony falls apart and is, you know, turned into ashes. But what, what, does, what happens to the cultural project? Well, it, uh, okay, so in immediately when the war starts, the organizations, these particular institutions in uh, film and music, for example, uh, collapse, or, or collapse, they just stop meeting, and they be gone. Mm-hmm. Instead, the two regimes turn their attention to these big plans. I mean, in that moment where they think they're going to win very soon, right, when France falls mm-hmm. so astonishingly quickly, and it still looks like Britain might either make a separate peace or, you know, be defeated, or the Soviets are not in the war, the United States is not in the war, in that period in particular, you can see intellectuals across Europe, you know, sort of making their peace with the new reality. Uh, and in that moment, you see some a, a very, yeah, quite extraordinary and interesting moment of planning for this uh, post-war future in which Rome and Berlin will be the new centers of intellectual organizing, not just, you know, in music, cinema, and uh, uh, literature, but in virtually every field you could conceive of. Planning mm-hmm. massive cultural and, you know, scientific scholarly conferences in the countries and planning the reorganization of the world of international cultural organizations in these cities. Then, of course, Hitler decides to invade the Soviet Union. Uh, Well, first, you know, Britain is not defeated. Then there's a decision to invade the Soviet Union. Uh, Then the United States enters the war. So, uh, and it appeared to me at first, and some of the existing scholarship had suggested that really it's in the latter part of the war, and especially when the war is not going well for Germany, that's when the Germans roll out the idea of Europe. And in a very cynical way, they suggest, oh, but we're just defending Europe, and they, and they roll out this propaganda campaign. Mm-hmm. In fact, however, it became quite clear to me that in the spring of 41, before the invasion of the Soviet Union had even begun, much less you know, collapsed or not begun to not go well, in the spring of 1941, Plans are afoot for creating a whole range of uh, European international cultural institutions under German control with a special place reserved for the Italians because they're thinking ahead maybe that the war will be longer than they had thought but still planning for what I, in the end it seemed to me they have a, they want organizations that can do two things. One is create real structures that can serve German hegemony in the cultural sphere after the victory that they're hoping for, but which can also, in the shorter term, rally elites in different countries around around Germany, right, and stimulate their their participation and, and uh, yeah, mobilize mobilize them basically for the cause. And this, as I say, is not in '42 or '43. This is in you know spring and summer of '41. So that that and that distinction and dates can seem a little nerdy, you know, who cares? But it seems to me very important because it shows that this is more than a last-ditch propaganda effort. This is a serious plan to create structures of, as I say, long-term cultural control. So the one, uh, so the film organization, is the International Film Chamber, is revived with a big fancy congr- uh, conference. The Venice Film Festival rolls out. Uh, you know, that had always been the 
the international meeting point for the International Film Chamber, and it is revived in 1941 in a quite you know grand fashion. Now minus the United States, and then they celebrate that and say, ah, now we can have a European cinema without the pollution of Hollywood. And, you know, they develop and they and they become more explicit in articulating what a European cinema might be. And what do they do? They basically take the cons the conceptual package associated with the idea of culture and relabel it as European. So what's a European cinema? It's a cinema that will be linked to the high, transcendent, non-materialist values that are somehow now seen as you know, distinctively European because they're not like America, not like Russia, not like the Soviets. Uh, but it will be a cinema of the nations, which will express, you know, each, na- each cinema will be national and will express its, uh, you know, self, selfhood somehow. Of course, people noted already then that that was a model which was designed to convince all the smaller European countries to make kind of little national movies while uh, Germany alone would make sort of blockbusters on a more or less Hollywood kind of model. But anyway, the content of the films is something I don't go into much in the book, which is sort of, yeah, too bad, but that's uh, I'm focusing on the institutions here. It is interesting mm-hmm. that when they're trying to make a great European movie, what in fact the Nazis end up making a lot of is sort of Operettas set in pre World War One Vienna, right? That's kind of the Europe they can, uh, they can, the best Europe mm. they can come up with, which is obviously <laughs> a, a bad sign. The Italians, meanwhile, are developing the the roots of neorealist cinema and coming up with some very important uh, films, which actually do what the Germans in the International Film Chamber are asking for: a cinema which is distinctly national, very Italian, and really rooted in the specificity of these Italian landscapes and you know, etc but also with an appeal across borders that can you know, ultimately pay for itself, as would become clear with the great successes of Italian neorealism after the war. But anyway, I digress. Uh, the, in 1941 and 42, then, this international, uh, excuse me, European Writers' Union gets launched with very similar goals to the, to the other institutions. But you ask what happens. And what happens, ultimately, is that they keep these things going rather longer than you might think. And it is somewhat astonishing to see, you know, late 42, even late 1943, that these, uh, you know, filmmakers from around Europe gather in Budapest to talk about the the future of the European cinema and to hash out very detailed accords about, uh, you know, standardized contracts to facilitate the distribution of movies across national borders and the clearing system, which will help pay for their movement across borders. And you think, you know, what are they thinking? They can't, don't they know they're going to lose the war? But they're... They, they do this. And eventually, you know, from the, the archival material just sort of stops. And there isn't really a moment when anyone says, we've lost. The closest we get is a quotation I use at the end of my final body chapter in the book of the administrator of the European Writers' Union, who's traveling around mm-hmm. Europe, you know, into 1944, meeting with the national groups of the European Writers' Union and encouraging them to participate and etc., but he says that by 44, you know, he doesn't get the same welcome he got in 42 because sure, nobody believes sure. Germany's going to win anymore. And they are now beginning to take their distance. And some of these intellectuals are quickly trying to sort of wash their hands, right, to avoid getting into trouble with what will happen later. Uh, and many of them get do get in trouble for what happens later, uh, in particular, obviously, in the countries that enter the, you know, the, come under Soviet domination after World War II. And many of those folks flee or are imprisoned. Uh, some, like famously the French uh, writer, newspaper man, Robert Brasillach, who is uh, executed for his collaboration 
where a lot of the Germans and Italians who play leading roles in this operation continue to play leading roles in the international cultural organizations after World War II as well, as I document at least a little bit in the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It, it, even in that, that case, uh, they do have a sort of dark cloud on their heads in many situations, but they maintain, uh, oftentimes maintain at least some of their prestige, which I, I think is interesting as well. Well, these administrator types, they're not, you know, they're who knows who they are really anyway, so they're able to come, they sure. don't have the cloud, I mean, yeah, they're able to, to continue to operate. And ultimately, this is what's interesting, and this complicates... I mean, I try to keep my hands off of too much kind of, you know, kind of judgmental... I mean, I'm obviously writing this book from the point of view of uh, opposition to Nazism and fascism, so that's judgmental enough. But mm-hmm. in terms of the choices of these individuals... I guess that's something I kind of wanted to get away from with this book. Sure. Is that there's a body of literature, you know, which is important, lots of good scholarship on intellectuals and fascism, which spends a lot of time on individuals and their particular choices and their Faustian bargains and their, uh, you know, and it ends up, I feel like you get a little stuck at the level of the individual. And, you know, was this a good or bad choice that he or she made? And that's important. You know, the ethical component is very important. And unfortunately, you know, questions of sort of who's going to cooperate with uh, with whom and under what circumstances are with us now, new ways. Uh, but I don't, I, I felt like there's a broader issues that need to be, that, that from my point of view, a more helpful explanation, that more helpful for me at least, was to take a step back from these individual fates and try to talk about the sort of broader concerns and, and sort of almost structural dynamics that affect their choices in this in this period. So you see, for example, that this, you know, young Finnish uh, playwright, Kivima, mm-hmm. is a keen supporter of uh, Nazi fascist, uh, you know, European cultural order. But he's also involved in UNESCO International Cultural Initiatives and helps found World Theatre Day in the 1960s. Now, mm-hmm. are we to understand that he's a horrible cynical you know i don't anything about that guy really uh and what he as a person but it's interesting that this is someone who's interested in international cooperation sort of Mm -hmm. regardless right he's interested in it under the sign of nazi fascism especially you know that's what looked like what was going to happen and if you're in finland and you know germany is your ally against the russians then that yeah i mean there's a set of concerns there that i don't want i'm not making excuses for anybody that's precisely the sort of set of issues i'm not getting into but I do think it's really striking that this guy goes on to found World Theatre Day, suggests that you have someone who's interested in international cooperation and is willing to do it under a variety of different political circumstances. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I should probably stop talking okay. about this before I say something off. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it, it's it's okay. No, I, I think that's really interesting. And and like you said, probably a more helpful uh, approach as a historian. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, as I say, a lot of the work on individuals has been very helpful. And I realize when I said Faustian bargain, it sounds as if I'm trying to say something nasty about the work of Jonathan Petropoulos. And I'm not because he does very good work. Uh, so I don't want to be, you know, not not picking fights here. But as I say, I wanted to move to a level. I mean, this is why ultimately the book is about institutions uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and the dynamics to which they are respond and which they're trying to change. Okay. Uh, ben, what are you working on now? What's your new project? Well, to my enormous 
pleasure, I uh, won a rather large research grant just as the book was coming out last month. So that uh, was just terrific timing. And this is a grant which will support a uh, few years of research on a new project that has to do with the history of uh, cultural treaties. That is to say, the treaties that countries mm-hmm. sign between one another regulating their cultural and intellectual, educational, sometimes scientific exchange. And the idea I had was a, that these cultural trees are interesting and that there's very little written about them, sort of as such, as a tool of diplomacy. They seem to be a distinctive mm-hmm. feature of 20th century diplomacy, and, uh, and, and then we can use them to follow issues across the 20th century. But in particular, what I got excited about was the way that the treaties as a body, right, taking hundreds of them, and then using the tools of the so-called digital humanities, you could use quantitative, computer-assisted research methods to try to say something broader about the, well, coming back to these issues about culture and civilization, you could use these treaties to try to chart to what degree something like a global agreement on what culture is emerges in the 20th century. Okay. Uh, I realize that's very broad and vague, but the idea, as I say, it's a digital humanities project using cultural treaties to examine the degree to which the European pre-World War II claim that there's this you know, thing called civilization that Europe has and is bringing to the rest of the world, the way that is replaced by a more or less universal acceptance of the idea that every nation has a culture, which I guess is the idea that is you know, underneath, the, the, that supports something like UNESCO. And that is a fundamental piece of our world order, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. But where does that come from? How is it agreed on? Well, I thought one way to get at it would be not just reading what intellectuals have said, but also seeing what the diplomats and political figures who signed these treaties, what they have said and done, how the networks were formed, with whom first, what's the process, what are the dynamics, what are the key terms, uh, things like that. So I'm going to start doing a lot of uh, number crunching for the first year of the project, and then in the second phase, once I've identified what seemed to be the key moments, key turning points in this storyline, I will turn to some of them in more kind of old-fashioned intellectual historical uh, detail. That's the plan. Excellent. Cool. Very cool. Um, Okay, Ben, I think we've taken uh, enough of your time. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, we'll have the podcast up soon. Well, thank you very much.